Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 15 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today we're joined by Dr. Mona Morstein, who has a BS in food and nutrition and earned her ND and did her family residency at the National College of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon. After running a successful private practice for 13 years, she joined Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine and was chair of nutrition and a gastroenterology professor and supervisor physician of students in the outpatient medical clinic for 11 years. Dr. Morstein is back in private practice and is recognized as an expert on pre-diabetes and diabetes and also specializes in gastroenterology and hormonal disorders. She is part of the Arizona Diabetes Coalition and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of American's Medical Advisory Board in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Morstein is the founder and executive director of the non-profit Low Carb Diabetes Association and her book Mastering Diabetes from Victim to Victor is due for release soon. Diabetes is a topic that is close to my heart. I have a very good friend who has diabetes and I think it's something that we should all be very interested in because it is becoming epidemic in the number of people particularly with type 2 diabetes. So we talk about diabetes and why gut health and diabetes are so interlinked. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Mona Morstein. Dr. Mona Morstein, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I'm really delighted to be here. And it was lovely to meet you in person at the SIBO Symposium uh, in June earlier this year. And we did have a bit of a chat about diabetes and gut health at the time. And it's just great to now be able to uh, share more of our conversation with our listeners. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and uh, fill in any blanks uh, that you ask about. Yeah, wonderful. So I'd love, I always ask this question to start with, and I'd love to start with your story, how you ended up becoming uh, such a, uh, you know, a well-versed and, and person who specializes in gastroenterology and diabetes. Well, um, after I did my uh, medical school training and residency in, in Portland, Oregon at National College, I, I moved out to Montana. Uh, and that's where I had my private practice for 13 years. And I saw a lot of ranchers and farmers 
uh, who had a septic, you know, who, who had just um, water, uh, septic tanks and, and so forth. They had a lot of cattle and, and they wound up with a lot of parasites uh, getting water from that had been polluted by the urine and defecation of their cattle. Uh, and they had a lot of food allergies. And so I kind of was just brought into treating a lot of gastrointestinal conditions during my year seeing the farmers and ranchers there. And I really enjoyed it. And it really seemed to be helpful to them. I also got very interested in diabetes during those years because I did not know much about it. And when uh, uh, people started coming to me with diabetes, I realized if I'm going to be a responsible physician, I really had to learn quite a bit about this condition. And I actually flew back east and mentored with Dr. Richard Bernstein, who's uh, written a, a very famous book, Dr. Bernstein's Diabetes Solution. Uh, I've worked with him and stayed friends with him. And so those were the kind of the two tangents that developed equally uh, during my time in Montana when I got to Southwest College. They needed someone to teach neurology or gastroenterology, and I felt very comfortable uh, then becoming the gastroenterology professor, uh, given my experience with the gut and how much I loved treating it. Uh, and I also, of course, continued my focus on working with pre-diabetic and diabetic patients. Wonderful. And, and we're so lucky that you uh, did go down that road because you've definitely brought a wealth of knowledge to people. Um, I'm particularly interested in diabetes. I have friends who have uh, type 1 diabetes, um, but I'm also fascinated by type 2 diabetes. Um, could you tell the listeners a little bit about the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Sure. Um, type 1 diabetes is classified as an autoimmune disease, which means the body's own immune system becomes imbalanced and starts attacking some aspect of the pancreatic beta cell and or insulin itself. And as a result of that damage to the pancreatic beta cell, it no longer really produces insulin. And these people, uh, in general, need to be injecting insulin. We have the, the childhood, the pediatric type of type 1, which actually tends to go, you know, into actually the 20s. Even though in medicine, pediatrics ends at 18 years old, pediatric type 1 does get into the, the 20s as well. And then we have what's called LADA, latent autoimmune diabetes of the adult, which is a slower onset type 1 diabetes that tends in general to start happening from age 35 uh, and older. And type 2 diabetes uh, generally tends to happen to people who are overweight, particularly with abdominal adiposity, or that really means just a lot of fat in their midsection. That produces insulin resistance, and that means that really, even though they make insulin, their body cells just don't pay attention to it. 
and don't create the signal that in that tells them to take blood sugar from the serum into the cells. So they don't do it. And so the blood sugar stays high in the serum. And when it reaches a certain point, uh, a certain number, then it's type 2 diabetes. And why is insulin so important? Like what's the role of insulin um, in our systems? That's a good question. Insulin is actually called the fat building hormone. Insulin, it drives storage of energy. And so insulin directs our cells to take the glucose in, and if it's in the muscle cells, it's good. We can burn it. But if it's in the fat cells and in the liver, it's designed to turn to fat and be stored as energy. And insulin actually reduces our metabolic capacity to burn our fat away. It's really a storage hormone that says, take your food, turn it to glucose, put it into your cells as fat and and just keep it there, store it. And I'd imagine that insulin has had a great place in human evolution at times of famine where we needed to store everything that we could so that we we, uh, didn't starve to death. Well, you know, that does, uh, in in times of famine or diseased, you know, or barbarians coming in, whatever, obviously, generally, the people that innately could store a bit more weight would survive versus, say, the skinny ectomorphs. Um, So, yes, it does... um, it does play a part in building up some extra storage of very high quality energy um, for those times when energy isn't available for us to eat at the amounts we need each day. I've always laughed that I would be one of those people that could survive the longest famine because my body is has been one of those types of bodies that I just need to look at something that's highly calorific and I'll put on pounds on the scales within minutes. So I now now that I've been going through this incredible journey of my own discovery towards health, I realise that perhaps it's all around my insulin that's causing these problems, um, not so much what I was eating. So I'd, I'd like to sort of talk about why are we seeing like is diabetes too on the increase and and like how do you, how does one know if they're if they're suffering it or if they're at risk of having it well diabetes is certainly a worldwide epidemic uh 300 million people right now worldwide have diabetes and and we're talking type 2 uh, and it is still in a a very significant elevating crisis. There are many etiological factors involved in developing diabetes from uh, obviously the simple of overeating and particularly overeating certain foods such as refined sugars and things like soda pop, just completely useless things uh, on the planet. Uh, and of course, refined sugar in pastries and, and the w- white bread and so forth, but also just overeating in general, eating many more calories than a person really needs, not getting exercise, uh, just staying on your computer all day and not getting out and getting exercise. And 
Also, we have environmental toxins are a huge burden on the body and produce both insulin resistance and autoimmune disease. We have uh, genetics, of course, also involved. Type 2 has a, a very high genetic risk. We have a nutrient deficiency because of the crappy diet people are eating. They lose nutrients that help the body be uh, better with uh, insulin sensitivity. We also have inflammation. The diet has, uh, if it's very inflamed, that can produce insulin resistance. We have the microbiome, which I'm sure you're interested to hear about. We mm -hmm. have other, uh, other hormonal uh, imbalances that can play uh, or exacerbate all of these other factors involved. Uh, so it's, um, you know, there's a number of factors now, probably all of them may not be in, the main factor in all people, but these are very common uh, problems that we see in all really Western societies. It is. And, and I, I just lament over the fact that we have, you know, this enormous access to highly processed, highly sort of sugary foods at our disposal, wherever we turn, we can get these these frankenfoods, as I call them, and they're just they're killing us. They're really killing the human population. We think we're we're doing so much better now that we have all of this abundance of food, but it's not food, and our poor bodies just are not coping with it. Uh, I cannot disagree with anything you just said. I think it's right on target. Yeah. So. How can someone uh, get a sense for whether they might be at risk of developing type 2 diabetes? Well, our fasting blood sugar now, I'll have to do a little math because the American number system is might be different than yours. Um, but generally, a person should wake with a blood sugar of around 80 to 85. I think that's around 5 if you're on the Canadian uh, type of scale. Uh, and um, if you're, uh, so in, in American, if you're at above, you know, from 99, if you're 100 to 125, I can do the math. Uh, now, to do the math, you divide by 18. And then you get, um, if you're on, you know, the, I know the Canadian system, the, it's probably maybe your system as well. Uh, that's prediabetes is um, 100 to 125, and then above 125 is diabetes. There's also looking at the A1C, but I personally do not diagnose diabetes from a hemoglobin A1C. Uh, I prefer to use what the endocrinologist like, which is to really make sure we have the blood sugars matching uh, a diabetes diagnosis. Those are all fasting numbers. If after you eat, your blood sugar is above 200, which would be 200 divided by 18, that is also considered a diabetic number. And are there symptoms that people can commonly feel without having to go and do a blood test that might be an indicator that, hey, things aren't going so great? Well, I think some of the main symptoms are you're overweight or even obese. Uh, 
uh, you have low energy, you might have hypertension. Uh, you know, in general, unless the type two is really amazingly and dangerously out of control, most type two patients are not going to be losing weight and urinating a lot. Uh, like type one pediatric kids are, although you can see it in some people that have been uh, very bad diabetics undiagnosed for some time, but they might develop some thrush. There might be some vaginal yeast or in men, what we call, you know, jock itch, genital yeast, toenail fungus, wounds don't heal well. If you get sick, you're not bouncing back. You're sicker for longer because high blood sugars really uh, interfere significantly with the functioning of the immune system. So there would be these uh, these growing uh, subtle and then more uh, pertinent signs and symptoms in a person who has diabetes and isn't yet aware of it. And if someone suspects that they might be at risk of developing type 2 diabetes or that they think, oh gosh, I think I might even have it, what's your advice in terms of what they should do next? Go right to their doctor and get some good blood work. Sure. And is it really just around uh, looking at the glucose levels in the blood that is the best diagnosis or or you mentioned another type of test as well? Are they really the two common tests? Yes. Glucose and an A1C is a is a, a, a the monitoring tool of diabetes. It measures how much of a red blood cell is covered in glucose. Uh, and uh, it's our tool that we do every three months to see really how well has the patient been doing. But I mean, there are a lot of other tests that we'll want to do. There are tests to check uh, how well people process sugar after meals, uh, how's their kidneys doing. It's a urine test. We'll want to test inflammation markers. How inflamed are they? How clotty are they since the number one reason diabetic patients die is from cardiovascular disease, heart attacks and strokes. We'll want to check their vitamin D. You know, we'll want to do, we'll want to check, of course, their lipids, their cholesterol and triglycerides, their liver functioning. Ferritin is our best early indication for fatty liver. So you'll need to get a very complete blood panel. And I hope It's from a physician that is a little more progressive and has maybe a little more integrative mindset that knows to do more comprehensive analyses than just standard, you know, physicians might do. Mm-hmm, definitely. And as you're, as you're listing off some of those things that you'd want to look for in a patient, I can't help but think there's such great similarity. I don't know that great's the right word, but there's such similarity between the things that you often look for when you've got disordered digestion. So if you're suffering something like irritable bowel syndrome or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, what's the connection between some, a condition like diabetes and poor gut health? Well, it's interesting, but we definitely know uh, that microbiome changes, and uh, probably your listeners already understand the microbiome is the collection of 
bacteria, viruses, and fungi in the gut. It's supposed to look a certain way, but there's all different kind of ways it can get imbalanced. We do know so uh, that changes in the microbiome can produce more systemic insulin resistance. We certainly know changes in the microbiome seem to definitely be associated also with systemic autoimmunity from what's called molecular mimicry, that if we get certain bacteria in our colon and our, our, our immune system is attacking it and the protein on that bacteria looks similar to a protein on an organ in our body, then we can start attacking that. We also know, for example, um, there's a condition that's oftentimes associated with type 2 diabetes in obese patients called fatty liver, which is when the liver, which is supposed to be 5% fat uh, per con you know, content, it's, it goes over 10% or even more. That's when we call it fatty liver. And that's a very, very bad thing for a body to have. And we know that SIBO causing leaky gut actually can lead to the development of fatty liver and actually be promoting the pro-inflammatory nature of it. Uh, leaky gut is also associated with um, autoimmunity. We know that a low-carb diet when you're not eating grains, can actually be very, very, very unhealthy to the human microbiome because those particular fibers feed the beneficial bacteria. Those bacteria make short-chain fatty acids, and short-chain fatty acids are the food for the colon cells. So we start seeing dysbiotic changes when, you know, and of course, removing grains from both a SIBO patient and also type 2 diabetes, very similar. But this is why it's so important with our, when I put a type 2 diabetic on, obviously, a low-carb diet, I have to, put, I put them on a lot of fiber powder. And this is also why I think for SIBO patients, it's actually pretty important as soon as possible to get them on flax seeds or chia seeds and maybe start introducing quinoa or millet, non-grain type, quote-unquote, grainy, you know, fibers to try to be uh, keeping the microbiome in the colon healthy while we're dealing with the small intestine bacterial overgrowth and we're removing the grains. That's that's really interesting. And I, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, the times that I've gone strictly grain free to try and heal my gut. And I hear from so many people around the world who have been on these incredibly restricted diets for years for some of them. And, and it, you know, I just think, gosh, what is it doing to their microbiome when they're literally eating five foods? They're left with five foods. It's true. You know, it, it really is a problem for the gut. It's a problem for digestive enzymes. You know, digestive enzymes are what we call inducible. 
in that they, the more variety of food you eat, the more they're going to be making all of these different enzymes. And if you just don't eat this or that food, and especially say a, a macronutrient, the pancreas is going to say, you know what, forget it. You're not making, you're not eating the food. I don't want to waste any energy making this enzyme. And then we start seeing people starting to put food back in and it can be, they can start having maldigestion sometimes not because they really can't, the, 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 because of the food, but because this restriction of their diet intake has really inhibited the variety of digestive enzyme production. Mm-hmm. And I know with myself that as I came off my SIBO diet and I only I was only strictly on it for six months, I just rejoiced in being able to increase my food again. And I now eat, I, I really work hard every week to make sure I'm getting a really broad variety of fruits and vegetables and different types of protein um, and other fibrous foods so that I can help replenish this little microbiome of mine that's living in my gut that's desperately trying to get well again. <laughs> you know, I th- that's obviously good. But I also think, remember, you know, we have this mind-body-body-mind connection. And the more I'm sure you're enjoying your food and, and, and being happy, you know, actually makes a healthier biome than feeling depressed and restricted. Uh, and, it, and that goes from the gut right? The gut also makes the mood, well, doesn't make the mood, but it has implicating factors on just how we enjoy life. And, you know, when we're working with patients with real uh, physical problems, and we do have to do restrictive diets, uh, just helping the microbiome and also just trying to do as comprehensive a program we can so they can start adding foods back in as expediently as possible. It's just a good mind-body connection. It is totally. And I remember back to when I uh, first got my SIBO diagnosis and I felt pretty angry at the entire world for putting me on this restricted diet and I felt unfair that it had happened to me. And about four weeks into my treatment, I really had to have a good stern talking to myself and I really checked my mindset because I realized I'd become incredibly negative every time I sat down to eat and I flipped it on its head and I started looking at my food and kind of thanking myself and the universe for giving it to me and for giving me the nourishing qualities that I had to eat and the fact that I had this beautiful, healthy, gorgeous food to consume. And within days of changing that, my my recovery felt like it sped up and now I really work hard with myself and um, some of my clients that I work with who have SIBO themselves around that mindset piece. It's so important that we feel positive, I believe, in the food that we're consuming so that the body is getting those signals. Hey, guys, this is great food. It's going to do some good work for us. Let's all be happy that it's coming on board. Uh, Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think it's very important and we have to, all of us individually, but also with our patients or clients, we can't ever forget to work on that mental, emotional level. Uh, You know, it's so easy to be, you know, sit at a desk and say, hey, stop eating this and this and this and this and this. And, uh, you know, it it can be very devastating uh, 
to people uh, to have these restrictions. And I think it's important to really work hard to show what they can eat and also to try to put, uh, you know, you, what I, you know, if you break a leg, I mean, it's not very happy, but you have to be in a cast for two months because your body has to heal. It's telling patients that your gut has kind of broken and we've kind of got to put a cast on it and, and have it heal. And just to get the mindset in a, a more positive or accepting way, I agree. I think that massively increases the healing. Uh, and, and people don't have to be on this diet for years and years and years. No, and, and nor should should they, I believe, or sh- do they want to be? It's not fun being in such a restricted state where you can't, where you feel like you're missing out, and that really helps to hinder the process, I think, psychologically. But, um, you know, having that eye on the ball of terms of, I've got a goal that I'm working towards and I love that analogy of your gut is like a broken leg. It just needs some time to heal. Let's put a cast around it and yeah, that's what give it the yeah. support. <laughs> yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about the uh, – just if there is a parallel between SIBO and uh, diabetes or gut disorders and diabetes? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Is there a connection? Well, you know, I mean, the, of course, diabetes, uh, we do have what I mentioned earlier, fatty liver in, in the as a gut problem. We do have a very unhappy, unhealthy, and inflamed uh, liver. Um, now, in terms of diabetes, there there are obviously uh, we do know um, antibiotic use, of course, which can be a a main predicating factor for SIBO patients. Uh, and also just in diabetes in terms of just changing the microbiome and making people more insulin resistant. You know, one of the reasons, the main reasons they got into giving cattle antibiotics because, you know, our agri-industry in the United States is really just an awful, awfully unhealthy whole, you know, corporation, you know, and their methodology, but they, when they give antibiotics to cattle, the cattle become like insulin resistance. They gain weight, they gain fat, they marble. And this is why they like to give antibiotics to cattle because they get bigger and fatter. And here we have Americans for any little thing, including virus conditions, getting antibiotics that can ruin their microbiome. And um, did I say, I didn't mean antibiotics caused SIBO. Obviously, it's a food poisoning. (laughs) I think I might have misspoken there. Um, Food poisoning, as far as I know, is not associated with diabetes. I think it's both just the general discomfort and and disarray in in the gut. Uh, that leads to it, and the simil- similarities of foods, particularly grains, that have to be removed from both of them. Um, diabetics, if they uh, are very uncontrolled for a long time, 
even though their disease is centered in the beta cell, which is part of the endocrine system, if they are uncontrolled for long, there can be exocrine or digestive enzyme damage. Uh, just like we can start seeing some, uh, with the slow migrating motor complex, some slow digestion, and also the loss of the disaccharidases in the small intestine. So they can both have some uh, digestive enzyme disarray as well. Mm, and it, it, you can just see how they can go hand in hand with each other. So one might not necessarily cause the other, but they can work in parallel with each other from, from what it sounds like. Yeah, I, I think they can. We certainly know that if um, SIBO is an etiological risk factor for developing that fatty liver specifically. Uh, so and since most people with fatty liver have, have diabetes or at least are obese and are at a huge risk factor for developing it, I think that's a very close connection. So can a sign be for someone if they struggle to lose weight that this could be a, an indicator that they're insulin resistance or on, on the road to type 2 diabetes, even if they're uh, eating a healthy diet or you know exercising and, and trying to do all the right things to lose weight? Well, they had to get obese. I mean, I, I, you know, they probably couldn't have just eaten really well and exercised to become obese to begin with. Uh, once they, so, uh, I mean, just to come back along those lines, once that, you know, insulin resistance is a frustrating medical condition because since so much insulin, when you are insulin resistant, your body actually produces more insulin to hammer the cells into accepting the glucose. So when we're measuring insulin in pre-diabetic or, or diabetic patients type 2, it's not uncommon that we actually see higher levels of insulin being produced. Because if a tiny bit of insulin isn't working to get that glucose out of the serum, that pancreas is going to be screaming insulin. There's a good test I do with pre-diabetics, and I have them fast, and I measure their glucose and insulin. Then I have them eat this meal at McDonald's, and uh, which is uh, uh, one pancake with one um, syrup one hash brown and water. And uh, that's saturated fat and 100 grams of refined sugar. And if you're going to be insulin resistant, that meal is going to do it. And as a result, and then I have them measure their glucose and insulin an hour and a half after the meal is over. And sometimes you can see that people secreted so much insulin as a result of that meal well, let me put it in numbers. A non-diabetic who's generally, uh, you know, has a normal, what we would call leanish, normal body type, produces between 30 and 40 units of insulin a day to deal with all they eat. But I've seen patients that after, on this test, they've produced, they secreted 240 units of insulin just to try to deal with that meal. 
which means they produced a week's worth of insulin just to get that blood sugar down because their body is so resistant to it. And oftentimes their blood sugar numbers are still super high. So, I mean, this is the, uh, this is how bad it can get in humans when they are really insulin resistant. Wow, they're, they're incredible numbers. And I'm guessing that this takes some time to develop. You, I, am I right in thinking that you don't just wake up one day and suddenly become insulin resistant, that it takes time and, and poor diet to get you there? Yeah, it takes time and poor diet and lack of exercise. And maybe another thing is maybe you have obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, maybe you have, maybe genetically, you don't detoxify the pesticides and herbicides, all of the chemicals and the heavy metals that are just rampant in the environment worldwide today. So, you know, and so slowly you start gaining a little weight and, you know, your numbers start inching up year by year. And of course, there's a kind of a negative feedback that as you keep eating this and keep getting toxins and you're not maybe sleeping well and you're not exercising, you know, you just, you, you do have less energy and maybe you're depressed and you do some emotional eating and so forth. It can just kind of snowball. And over the years, yes, absolutely. It's not from Tuesday to Wednesday. <laughs> and something I hear from people a bit and that I've experienced myself was after years and years of disordered digestion, and I suspect that I had SIBO from a very young age, just undiagnosed, that I have uh, struggled to lose weight. I've always been that person that will put weight on very quickly, but I won't take it off. Um, easily. And I, to my surprise and, you know, sadness, at the end of my SIBO treatment after six months of having the cleanest diet and such healthy food, I had barely lost any weight. I'd only lost three kilos. So that's, what is that, about seven pounds, um, which wasn't very much given that I had stripped out any kind of what I'd consider naughty food. And I also noticed when I started to reintroduce carbohydrates and I attempted to eat sugar, you know, be, be it with honey or even if it was a refined sugar, that I felt it really quickly on in my blood sugar. I felt, you know, like I'd, you know, I could feel a spike. I could feel kind of shaky and and quite an intensity to to that. And and I've spoken to other people who also have similar experiences. So that leaves me wondering if that is a sign that you might be suffering from insulin resistance if you can actually feel the impact of, of sugar on your bloodstream? Well, you know, you're either reactive hypoglycemic uh, or you know, maybe you are having uh, some hyperglycemic symptoms. That test would be great for you, the one I've mentioned. Uh, the um, the before and after glucose and insulin with the meal challenge that would be that would give us a really good amount of information to learn how your body is processing foods in terms of 
uh, blood sugar. Mm. Gosh, it would. But what a horror for me to have to walk back into a McDonald's after years I know. of avoiding. <laughs> well, you know, the the standard conventional test is just to drink. Uh, is just to drink a bottle of glucose, straight glucose. Uh, And that's an option, obviously, but I like using food because that's what people are eating. You know, they're eating this food and it's, I like to see it, what the effect is on, on the person. But if you were very uh, leery, then even the glucola could work for you. Yeah, definitely. So what can people do, uh, you know, if they're listening to this podcast and I think, my gosh, that just sounds like me, it sounds like my story. How do you then work with your patients in terms of getting them back into uh, better health? Well, the way I set things up, my, my first office visit with a patient is an hour and a half. And that visit is just a very comprehensive intake and uh, a physical exam. And then in that interview, uh, I decide with you know what test, like if it's a gut person, there's a three main triad test that I do. Obviously, one is a SIBO breath test. Another is a food sensitivity test. Uh, and then there's also a stool analysis to see what's going on with the microbiome more specific to the colon. Uh, of course, we know very clearly that a stool analysis has zero information about the small intestine. It's only about the colon. And so if those are, and then of course, I'll send people home with a diet diary. I make all my patients record their diet for a week with symptoms and how their bowel movements are. And I don't know, maybe we'll want to do blood or anything, but we, if it's a diabetic, I send them home with a diet and a glucose graph where they record their blood sugar for a week. I probably will want to do blood work with them. And then in the second treatment visit, when I have all the tests back, that's a whole hour and it's starting the whole, it it sets up the entire treatment. Uh, Whether it is SIBO, the test was positive, or whether it's food sensitivities or a gut microbiome problem in the colon, or the diabetics going over uh, the diet and exercise and medication, if, if they're on it, you know, reducing it. Uh, if they're on insulin, for example, we've got to massively reduce it when they go on a low carb diet. I go over supplementation, uh, you know, it's the whole, so that's how, and then we have uh, follow-ups um, after that, but that's how I set my clinic up. It seems to work really, really well. And who are the types of people that you um, commonly see coming into your clinic? Well, uh, you know, my clinic is fa- full family practice, so I see kids and uh, and adult women and men. Uh, so I, I'm since I'm pretty good with diabetes, I do see a lot of type one diabetic patients. I I do two day seminars on how to use insulin, uh, so um, uh, I feel very confident. Uh, using insulin with all patients in all situations. Uh, but otherwise, I, you know, there's a lot of men with SIBO. There's a lot of women with SIBO. So it's, I, I see um, everybody uh, along those lines. 
Yeah, sure. And in terms of the use of insulin, uh, you know, do you like using insulin for type 2 diabetes or do you try to keep that as a last resort? Well, insul- Well, of course, insulin for type 2 diabetes is it's a terrible idea. You know, it's certainly, you know, the problem with medications in type 2 diabetes, I don't mind metformin. Nobody minds metformin, glucophage. Uh, uh, you know, that helps reduce a little insulin resistance in the liver. And there's, and it doesn't make people gain weight, which is a big problem with many of the medications for type 2 diabetes. The problem is, is that no medication right now in clinical use actually treats the, the, the condition, which is insulin resistance. We had some drugs called TZDs, Actos and Avandia, uh, and they did decrease insulin resistance, but their side effects were so awful that they're just not in clinical use anymore. So none of the drugs that we have now for type 2 diabetes, aside from metformin, which is more specific to the liver and not getting, you know, it doesn't really work with the fat cells or so forth, they don't really treat the condition. Uh, so, and of course, we'll start with oral medications if we need to. Um, and then insulin is generally a last resort, even though there are studies showing using insulin right away in very poorly controlled in initial type 2 patients can really get them under control very quickly. Nobody wants to do that. Doctors don't want to do that. Patients don't want to do that. And frankly, if I put them on a low-carb diet, and they're, and I put them on, you know, and they start going for some walks and we test them for sleep apnea and maybe get them on a CPAP machine if they need it. And we're doing stress relaxation and I'm putting them on supplementation and maybe I'm helping their liver and getting them sweating so they can start detoxifying. You have no idea. I mean, that well, you do have an idea, but oftentimes people don't need any medications at all. That this is going to, this is the condition. There, we're going to get it under control just through comprehensive integrative medicine, and that's why I form the Low Carb Diabetes Association uh, at lowcarbdiabetes.org. Although, don't check the website out yet. We we hope to launch it in about three weeks. Um, but this is because using uh, comprehensive integrative medicine, not just the diet, but the diet and and detoxification and supplementation and sleep and stress and healing the gut microbiome. Uh, and then, you know, medications, these all have to be worked together to really get a complete, uh, a well, reversal of type 2 diabetes. I'm currently doing uh, Dr. Michael Mosley's eight-week blood sugar uh, diet, which is very much what you're talking about. So it's a, a severe reduction of sugars and carbohydrates from the diet um, and also restricting calories. So you do 800 calories a day for the eight weeks. And I'm doing it as a self-experiment really so that I can see whether something like that supports my body to try and finally release some of this weight now that I've been actively healing my gut and getting rid of my SIBO. Um, but it's been it's been a really interesting process for me. I feel amazing on it. And obviously I'm eating very, very healthy 
food, lean protein and and lots of vegetables. Um, But I wasn't anticipating just how good I would feel uh, psychologically and also that it's made me realise that I don't need to eat so much. I can feel really full and satisfied on a day uh, with much less calories than I've eaten in the past. So it's been an interesting journey. I'm only at at week three, so I've still got five weeks to go. Uh, But it's helped me to lose some some fat, which is important. Uh, And it will be interesting at the end of it to see what my blood glucose levels are at the end when I go back and... um, Retest. I, I'm glad that, you know that is working for you, but I do have two caveats regarding that. One is when we eat less than a thousand calories a day, you know that you know slowly that's going to decrease our metabolism to the extent that when we are off of that and go back to say 1,400 normal amounts of calories, uh, we can have that sudden weight return. We also want to be aware that, and especially for people like you, Rebecca, with this, I look at food and gain weight, you know, it would be interesting to ensure, but when we, here, let me start again, environmental toxins, the chemical ones tend to store in our fat cells. And when we are losing fat, we are going to be releasing these toxins into our body. And this is a scientific fact. We have done, I mean, they've done studies where they measure serum levels of chemicals and then have people lose weight and the serum level of chemicals is significantly elevated. And so if the weight loss is not tied to a pretty serious program of detoxification, I think this is one reason some people start to lose weight and then they reach that plateau. Why can't I lose more, but even doing the same diet and so forth? And this is because all of these chemicals you've released into your system are now actually starting to make you more insulin resistant and shutting down your weight loss. And so weight loss protocols are fantastic and you feeling great is fantastic, but I hope you are really working, uh, uh, you know, on a program, supporting your liver with detox, making sure you're sweating ideally every day and, you know, ensuring that you're, you're, you're urinating enough and having good bowel movements and, and so forth, that you're just on a good protocol along those lines. I am, and I'm working with my naturopath on this. I'm not doing it alone, and uh, and we're monitoring it closely, and it's something that uh, we've both agreed that uh, it, you know, I don't necessarily need to continue uh, to the full eight weeks. And if there are any signs that my body is not coping with it, then we'll, we'll stop it. Uh, so I am being very measured and careful in my approach to this. Uh, but I am, I am definitely working on, uh, you know, every day I get out and exercise. Um, not only does it make me feel good, but, um, you know, for that for the sweating function that you've mentioned and I'm drinking plenty of fluids as well to make sure that everything is uh, is well hydrated and, and flowing. Um, you've talked about people recording their blood glucose levels. How would someone do that? Is it a simple uh, test that you can pick up from a pharmacy or how do you do it 
Is it possible to do it at home? Yeah, I mean, it just requires, yes, a pharmacy sells glucose meters and uh, you need then a glucose test strips and lancets, the little needles, and by using that machine, and it all comes together, a, a glucose meter comes with a lancet, uh, a few test strips, but you can order, you can buy more at a pharmacy. And uh, this is then uh, how you can measure your blood sugars. Uh, generally, where if you're type 2 or thinking you're insulin resistant, then uh, we measure fasting. And then one and a half hours after meals. Okay, great. I'd like to just, uh, t- before we finish, just touch on your new book, Mastering Diabetes from Victim to Victor. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what the book is about? Yeah, thank you. It's at the publishers now. Um, it's, yeah, it's, well, it's a very long book uh, teaching both um, people who have diabetes and their caregivers and medical practitioners pretty much everything about diabetes from uh, what the different types are and the different labs and how to analyze it and the etiological factors and how conventional medicine treats it. I go over all the medications that are available, the pros and the cons of them. I go over uh, the different diets that are used and how they can be played out. I go over all the supplements, the main supplements that are used. I talk about what we call the, I I talk about sleep and stress and the microbiome and detoxification. And I talk about um, the challenges, how do you treat highs and lows. I treat, and then I go over a Uh, pediatric and gestational. And then I also go over the complications of diabetes and um, uh, why they occur, how conventional care treats them, and what's the best ways to prevent and treat them with uh, comprehensive integrative medicine. So pretty, pretty comprehensive book, I hope. That sounds so interesting. And if somebody wants to uh, grab a copy of the book or or connect with you um, as a result of listening to this podcast, where is the best place for them to find you? Um, Well, uh, my my website for my clinic is at azimsolutions.com which stands for Arizona Integrative Medical Solutions, azimsolutions.com. And that's my clinic website. And hopefully maybe uh, in three weeks or so, three weeks or a month, no more, uh, to check out lowcarbdiabetes.org, the nonprofit um, that I have. uh, uh, to educate people about comprehensive integrative care of um, diabetes. And I also would say at the website, medicinetalkpro.com, I have done a five-week webinar series on SIBO and on other, and then I did a second one, another five-week one on um, uh, on uh gastrointestinal reflux disorder, 
on collate on the gallbladder, uh, everything about the gallbladder, on digestive enzymes and pancreatic insufficiency, on inflammatory bowel disease. And so they're under, if you go to their website and go to CE, which stands for continuing ed, uh, you can see um, there's an archived webinars if anybody's interested in, in listening to those. That sounds great and such wonderful resources. I'll make sure that I have got the links for all of them in the show notes for anyone listening. Dr. Mona Morstein, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast and I have personally learned so much about type 2 diabetes and, uh, and I'm sure my listeners have. So thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you, Rebecca. It's really, it's been great. You're an excellent interviewer. And I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks. That was Dr. Mona Morstein on episode 15 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. If you would like to access the full transcription of the show or the show notes or any of the links mentioned in today's show, all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash diabetes. Now, I love hearing your feedback, so don't forget to leave a rating and review in iTunes or the podcast listening app you use to listen to this podcast. And you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, and Google+. All you need to do is look for The Healthy Gut. Coming up on next week's show, we're joined by Sarah Butler from Organic Angels. Sarah joins us to talk about her journey going organic with her produce and how it led to launching her own organic business so that she could help other families eat organic food. She also talks about her own health struggles with an autoimmune disease and issues with her digestive system. So it's a great episode and one that I'm sure you will enjoy. Tune in next Tuesday for that. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production editing and original music score of this podcast to hear more of belinda's music head to soundcloud.com forward slash belinda coombs the healthy gut podcast is a production of the healthy gut thanks for listening deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 